Um, well, welcome. My name is Michael McCracken, and I'm the pastor at Alamo Ranch Community Church in San Antonio, and uh, unbelievably honored to be here. I'm honored to know uh, the Ogles, and and uh, that he would uh, be willing to to share his pulpit with me is is uh, it's a big deal to me, and so just want to say thank you and. Uh, it really is my hope in, that you were a little bit disappointed that it wasn't Kyle preaching this morning. Um, I am grateful that, that we're here to just hear from God and that we have the Word of God before us. Uh, but I did want to just say thank you for letting Kyle uh, just sort of take this month because what I know is that it is his absolute heart's desire to love and serve you guys for a long time. Um, his heart bleeds for Brenham and the people of Brenham, especially the people at Center Church. And so uh, this is just a good thing. I just want to affirm that you're letting him uh, take some weeks and uh, please continue to pray for him, that God would refresh him and um, guy looks so good. He's just a good looking man. And just, um, I, uh, when I preach, it's dark in the room, so I can't actually see people. I can see all of you. So I just, I may go around the room and talk about all of you. I don't know. We'll see. Um, um, anyways, we should, we should, uh, we should get started. Let me pray for us one more time and, and we'll dive in. Father, uh, I thank you. Um, man, just for who you are. Father, I thank you that, that the truth, like the reality of why we're even here today uh, is because you love us more than we could ever love you. And you are more faithful to us than we could ever be to you. So, so to be your people is, is it's just such good news. That we didn't like earn our way into this space. That you bought us. And Father, I, I just pray that even this morning in your mercy, you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and minds that understand. But most importantly, Father, hearts that believe. And in so doing, God, we, we ask uh, Father, for you to preach and you to teach this morning. It, it must be your word that goes forth. And we ask that you would continue to pour out your spirit, Father, to lead and guide us into the truth, that we would be a people who delight in the truth, especially the truth of your Son. That in Christ this morning we are adopted, we are saved, we are seen as righteous in your sight. Father, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The psalmist, What a gift it is to us that, that we get to have this 
this journaling of a man to be known as a man after God's own heart. And so it's so trustworthy and it's so helpful when we get to read the, the, the cries of, of the heart of the psalmist. And he starts out in this particular psalm by saying, vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people from the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. And so really for us today, we're kind of asking the question, what would it look like if we actually believed that God was our vindicator, that God was our defender, uh, that God was our deliverer. And the reason why I say it like that is because I believe that I'm in a room of people who like cognitively believe that. I mean, that, that our theology understands that that is, in fact, who God is. That he is um, our vindicator, our defender, and our deliverer. But what probably makes this as relevant as anything is the warning that the Apostle Paul gives us uh, in 1 Corinthians. When he tells us that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And so... What happens is, is this this like ironic reality in our life where the very knowledge about God as vindicator, um, as defender, as deliverer, like the more we know that, uh, the the more confident we actually become in ourselves, like the, the more we uh, know these things. The less we think we need God. Like, that's what the Apostle Paul's saying. Like, he's going, there's this weird thing that happens when we grow in knowledge. And it's not an increase in faith and trust in God. It actually turns out to be this increase in faith in ourselves. So the point is, is we can be a room full of people who know this. But do we believe it? Do we live as though this is true? Uh, and so, are we a people waiting on God? He commands us to wait on the Lord. Are we a people waiting on God or uh, is God waiting on us? Because on some level, Could it be possible that God's going, hey, listen, actually, it appears like you're pretty much just trying to be your own deliverer right now in life. It it actually appears like you're trying to be uh, your own defender, your own vindicator. It's interesting. The idea of vindicate is uh, it's a term for like right judgment. And the idea of defend, of course, um, uh, would be um, like to defend uh, our cause or um, to um, be sort of 
found to be right. And then, of course, the idea of to be delivered means to get from one circumstance to uh, a better circumstance. And so, in the Christian life, what does it look like to wait on God to be our vindicator, our defender, or our deliverer? Well, when we look at the life of Jesus, this is pretty amazing. Um, Because Jesus is arguably the most misunderstood man to ever walk the face of the earth. Jesus, the son of God, and almost nobody believed that that was true. Jesus walked this earth and he was misunderstood by so many people. Also, and this is crazy to me, Jesus would let men walk away from like an interaction with him. Unrighteous men, he would let them walk away thinking they were right. To the degree that in their thinking they were right. I mean, it was going to literally lead him right to being crucified. Like, we understand that it wouldn't cost us that much, but like, I mean, there's some of us in this room who, like, we will stay awake at night thinking about all the people who are wrong and how can we make sure they know that we're right. Jesus literally just let people walk away thinking they were right. And then finally, we find Jesus on the cross and we understand um, that uh, deliverance from an uncomfortable situation is not always the ultimate goal. And so, I mean, that's hard for us. Like for some of us, our relationships are tattered and torn and our life is in um, just difficulty because we have a really hard time dealing with being or feeling as though we're misunderstood. Like, dude, if you could just understand what I was saying, you would know that I'm right. And we can't let it go. And so... Uh, boy... Um, we can get ourselves into some tough places um, when when we are trying to be our own vindicator, our own defender, our own deliverer. Uh, in Exodus 14, God tells Moses, this is so good, he just says, the Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. You just be quiet and I'm going to fight for you. And like nine other times in the Old Testament, God comes to his people and says, I will fight for you. I will fight for you. I will fight for you. Um, And so when we look at the life of Christ who lived this out perfectly, we just begin to have this category now for doing life with Christ that says, you know what? When God says he's fighting for me, he might not necessarily be fighting um, for me to be understood by everyone that I do life with. Like that may not be God's ultimate aim. Um, or that I would be right all the time, 
or that my difficult circumstance would go away. But when God says, I'm fighting for you, what it really ultimately means is that he's fighting to have you. So the ultimate goal for God has always been that I would be your God and you would be my people. So everything that God does is to that end. And so we get to verse two. He says, for you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? And so we know that this is the cry of the oppressed. This is the cry of the downtrodden. And, and if you think about the psalmist, David, uh, by any definition, by any standard, that man experienced great injustice in his life. I mean, if you've ever read his story of being the armor bearer for King Saul, um, for years and years and years and years suffered injustice at the hands of Saul for years. And so so you have this this cry of somebody who is in a place in their life where they're um, they're just experiencing um, this kind of oppression or this kind of um, injustice at the hands of someone else. But this morning, I, I want to make a case that this could also be coming from somebody else. That this could be the cry of someone who is exhausted from trying to vindicate themselves, trying to defend themselves and rescue themselves. That this is the prayer of the one who confesses from their lips that Jesus is Lord, while though at the same time trying to sit on their own throne. This is the cry of someone who's finally exhausted from trying to do this on their own. And they're going, hey, God, where are you? It feels like you've abandoned me. But now we understand that maybe. Maybe you abandoned God. Maybe you can't see God from your throne. And so what happens is, is when our little kingdom, the kingdom that we set up in our life, the one that we think we can control, the one we think, if we were being honest, is just better than the one that God would set up. Man, as that begins to sort of crack and crumble. Oh, man, like somebody has to be blamed. And if you're the king, it can't be your fault. Most of us, most of us have no problem declaring the truths about God, who he is, all he's done, singing all of these truths. But yet in our life, we live as people who are consistently anxious, grieved by almost everything Demanding that everyone live life according to our vision and our strategy and our way. And in the end, we just can't seem to find joy. And so, again, like we we find ourselves going, God, where are you? What's going on? 
And so there's this there's just this gap between what our brain believes, but how we're living life. Are we living life as though we actually believe that God is God and his ways are better? Or are we doing life as though we actually think our ways are better? And so the psalmist brings us to this in verse three. He says, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Send out your light and your truth. There's, when we think about the light and we think about the truth, we've we got to think about Jesus. He is the light and he is the truth. He says, let them bring me to your holy hill. Uh, Everybody, everybody, not just in this room, the whole world, the whole world wants to be on the holy hill. Everyone does. Right. We understand that all miserable people want heaven. Like, like nobody's waking up honestly going, you know what I want is for my life to be worse. Everybody wants heaven. The, the problem is, is just because you want heaven doesn't mean you love God with all of your heart, soul, mind and strength. And that's the divide. Right. Like that's the problem. Um, and so everyone, the whole world is trying to figure out how to ascend to the holy hill. Everybody has this ability to see that something is wrong. How do we get to the holy hill? Everybody wants that. The question is, is like, how do you get there? And so it's really, really important that for the psalmist, he's going, I'll tell you how I need to get there. It's the light and the truth. It's the light and the truth. And and so what's interesting about when the light and the truth comes, though. We no longer get to talk about the unjust man over there. In the presence of Jesus. Now we have to talk about the unjust man. Right here. And so. And as people like we think we think we like the truth and that we would want to have the truth um, just as Americans, we we genuinely think that people are good and that people like goodness and all of those things. The problem is, um, historically speaking, when ultimate goodness walks into a room. People don't start worshiping him and and want to be with him, they, they want to murder him. And so what Jesus did was he came and living proof that you and I don't love goodness as much as we think we do. We like goodness to the extent that it makes me feel better than you. So like to the extent that my goodness sort of surpasses your goodness, I I like goodness. But when somebody walks in the room and their goodness is better than mine, I don't rejoice in it. I get jealous. I get super defensive. I get super insecure. So don't just assume if Jesus walks into this room, your joy increases exponentially. That's not a guarantee. Just like what we sing. In order for your joy to increase, if Jesus walks into the room, you've got to be willing to be decreased. Um, I do want to read a couple of texts. In John 1. Verse nine, it says the true light, which gives light to everyone, 
was coming into the world, and he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And then a few chapters later, in John 3, verses 19 and 20, it just says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. So in other words, like you may not know how much you love the darkness until the light comes. And so when the light comes, it helps us understand why the world would basically give anything to find any other way to ascend to the holy hill. Like, how do I how do I get to joy and happiness and fulfillment? How how do I get there another way? Because to have to go through the light and the truth is painful and it's not self-exalting like it doesn't. I don't get to be the hero and get to the top of the holy hill that just it just cannot work that way but we want it to we want it to and we want people to think that we're great and so verse four says then i will go to the altar of god to god my exceeding joy and i will praise you with the lyre Oh, God, my God. Um, the psalmist says, I, I will go to the altar of God. Um, when the light and the truth comes. There's no. There's no getting around or there's no escaping it. And so for the psalmist, and this is this is where he is leading us. He is leading us to the good news. To the true good news, and that is at the altar. And so what happens at the altar um, right now in Bible in a year, we're, we're reading through Leviticus which if I'm just being straight up, straight up honest, like that might be the hardest book in the Bible for me to read when we're just talking about all the details and all the laws. And um, it's it's it gets a little bit monotonous. But for a reason, because over and over and over and over, these people had to do something in their life before Jesus came. And so for any and every reason you were going to have to come to the altar in order to be in relationship with God. You'd have to take this bull. All right. It's about to get PG-13 in here for just a second. OK. Um, and you would slit the bull's throat. OK. And you would take the blood that rushes out of the bull. And, and this is super interesting to me. Um, and you would uh, you would splatter some of the blood on the side of the altar uh, and then you would put some of the blood on the earlobe and some of the blood on your big toe. Like, I don't just just to, as a reminder throughout the week, I guess. Um, and then you'd open the bull up, put all of its insides onto the altar, cut its head off, put the head on the altar. And burn it. 
over and over and over as a reminder that the only reason why you're alive is because that fool took your place. And the reason why that's so important is that there would be a people who understand the grace of God in their life. That any other way would be insufficient. But the way towards joy in this life is to experience the grace and mercy of God to its full extent. But to experience the grace of God to the fullest, again, is not self-exalting. It's why we actually love grace, but we love the idea of earning grace, which is oxymoronic. We want to feel like we, like everybody wants to be loved by God, but we want to feel like we've deserved his love. But over and over and over and over again, the sacrificial system was just a reminder. You don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. But let me show you how much I love you over and over and over and over again. So, the psalmist needs the altar just as much as the oppressor does. And that's, that's kind of a life-changing um, view. Uh, I feel like our culture, and there's certainly nothing new under the sun, but I, I feel like our culture has actually tried to um, take the true good news of the gospel and all that Christ accomplished being sacrificed on our behalf. And the culture that we live in and the day that we live in has actually tried to create sort of a, a faux good news, a fake good news that would say, you know what, it's actually good news if you are oppressed. Like it's actually good news that you would be the offended party. Because what our culture has done is basically said, if, if you find yourself in that category, you have like this innate righteousness. And it kind of makes you untouchable. So if you're the party that's been hurt, if you're the party that's been sinned against, um, then you actually, it's like you have this sort of free pass. And you're immune from any sort of correction or any sort of rebuke. And so that's can come across as like good news to people who've been hurt. Like, look, you have like this sort of built in now kind of power over people. They can't do anything. They can't touch you. Um, and it's, again, it's, it's a complete um, fraud uh, that they've taken from our theology, because what what's basically being said is, is you've already you've already taken your cross, like you've already suffered for you, and so you're good. Now, what they don't tell us in all of this is that um, in order for this good news to work for you, you can never ever forgive, ever. You always, you always have to dwell and do life in this state 
of being hurt and being offended and oppressed. You have to stay there. So you could never forgive that person. And so what you're doing is you're just sort of walking in this life um, of shame and um, suspicion and bitterness. And oh, by the way, like this works really well right up until the point you start standing next to somebody who um, is more offended than you. Like right up until you start doing life with somebody who's been hurt worse than you. And then all your power's gone. All of it's gone. And you have nothing to hope in. You have nothing to look to. That is why, that is why there is nothing as good as the gospel of Jesus and the grace that we have through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, Now, there's also a flip side of that, though. Because there's this tendency, there's this tendency for us to go, um, cool, God already took care of it, so we don't have to actually care about people. But that's not true either. Scripture doesn't let us get away with thinking in that way either. Um, The idea of vindicate and defend and deliver is the language of justice. And so Scripture talks about um, pursuing and doing justice for the people that we do life with, for our neighbor. Uh, One of my favorite right now verses... In the Old Testament, um, is Isaiah sixteen three, and it just says, "Give counsel, grant justice, make your shade like night at the height of noon, shelter the outcast, do not reveal the fugitive." And and certainly, we believe that Jesus is in line with the teachings of the prophets because he's the one that goes, "Hey, listen." Um, Do you remember when you fed me and I was hungry and you clothed me and I didn't have any clothes and you visited me in prison and and the people around him were like, well, when did we do that? He's like, well, when you did it to the least of these. And then, of course, the writer of James right in line with Jesus when he's like, hey, listen, faith without works is dead. So over and over and over, saving faith will produce good works. Right? Good works don't save, but our saving faith will be shown by the good works that we do. And so I love, I love this picture that Isaiah paints because it reminds me of Jonah. Um, do you remember when Jonah finally goes to Nineveh and he preaches the gospel and like the whole city repents? And he's ticked. Like he's mad that God forgives them. He's so annoyed. Like, can you think about somebody in your life that it's like on one hand, you're like, oh, I wish they'd come to Jesus. But like if they did, it would be a little bit annoying because you don't think they deserve that much mercy. Like that's where Jonah is. Old boys walking in so much self-righteousness in that moment. He's like out there pouting to himself. And then all of a sudden in the heat of the day, he's so hot. And so now that just makes him even more angry. And right at the moment that like 
we'd just like slap him and move on. The God of the Bible, the Old Testament, big, bad, angry God, just causes a big old leaf (laughs) to grow up out of the ground and just give him some shade in that moment. And I love that picture for just the people of God that we would be shade for people who are walking in a dry and weary time in their life. Not their Savior, but that in a time where they're like in a parched land, the people of God, because hear me, like this is the point. This is the whole point that we're getting at. Because Jesus is your vindicator, your defender, and your deliverer. Now you can stop worrying about those things for you and pursue those things for others. And we as the people of God could actually be like shade in the noonday for people who are hurting and struggling because we already have our vindicator. It's already been taken care of. Um, Finally, He ends like this. He says, uh, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for, sh- for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. This is the third time in two chapters that the psalmist says, why are you cast down, O my soul? I think that this is something that we need to begin to... Um, like put into practice. He just asks himself. Do you ever ask yourself that? Or are you so, in such a bad mood? Um, the psalmist is not leading us to be just super like internalized and only caring about ourselves and, and, and um, being self-consumed. When the psalmist says, why are you cast down, O my soul? Uh, what he has gotten to in his life is this. Um, he understands, realizes that something is wrong in his life. And his automatic assumption is not, well, I mean, if we could just fix those mugs out there, everything would be okay. He's actually matured to a place in his life where he's going, wait, wait, wait. There might be some point of repentance that needs to go on in my life. Like, like the great barrier to joy in my life might not be that schmuck over there. Like, it, could, it might just be me. Like I might just be the great barrier to joy in my life. What is the idol? Like, what am I hoping in? What am I looking to that has failed me? And at the end of the day, when we ask ourselves the question, like, why are you downcast? It's a great question to ask ourselves. I mean, it demands first that we literally just take enough time, like to be still just long enough to even ask the question. And I'm saying that's literally part of the answer. That you could just be still. You could just like be quiet for just a second. Um. So he says, hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And, and so this 
this sort of ends one more time, and, and I think you can think about it in at least two ways, right? So if, if you're in the difficult season, it, it sort of preaches like the, there's hope that I can sort of look forward to. There, there's the hope of like the, the light will shine again. Like I won't be in this dark season forever. But it also preaches like the person one more time who's going, actually, um, like today I'm done trying to be my own king. Like today I'm done trying to be my own God. I could never like redeem myself. I couldn't. And so right here and right now, it's the person coming before the Lord and going, like, now I will praise you. You are my salvation and my God. And so I love that, um, that you guys uh, end your, your services uh, with the opportunity to take communion because I, I would just want to encourage all of us this morning to, to take just a few minutes um, and be willing to ask ourselves that question, why are you downcast, O oh my soul? And if you're going, oh, I'm, I'm good, just sit there for a little longer. <laughs> just give it a little bit more time. Um, but that's what's so great about God giving us a very physical, uh, tangible, reminder that it was his broken body his shed blood who made us right with god that, that we that we come to the table and we we take enough time to remind ourselves to recalibrate our line of thinking that goes my only hope for joy in this life is to come to know um, the amount of grace and love that God has for me. But here's the thing. If there's always someone else to blame, you will never get to actually know how much God loves you. Like if there's always another scapegoat in your life, you will never get to experience the unending grace and mercy that God has for you. And so it's a, that person, not the person who had a really great week, morally speaking, this week, who comes to the table. The one who comes to the table is the one who's tired and weary and heavy laden. And going, Jesus, you get to be the one who did all the work. You, you get to be the Savior. You get to be King. You get to be God. Man, Brad, I want to invite you back up. To just help lead us in a time of, of, of truly sort of getting alone with God. I wonder, I wonder if there's anything um, in your life right now, whether it be, again, just this need to, 
to just always be understood or this need to, to always be right or this need to always be comfortable. Like, um, could those be idols in our life? And so could this be just a time, just a moment to, to let God speak and that we would have the opportunity, man, to just walk in repentance, to, to change our thinking about those things and believe the truth um, that Jesus is enough. And then as you feel led and when you're ready, um, we, can, we can celebrate communion um, the work that Christ has done.